Good morning, crowd family, and happy, happy Sunday. Hey, listen, I want to give a shout out to Margarita Diaz out there in Idaho. Margarita, I'm so blessed that you're watching us online. God bless you and love you. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 through 17 is today's text. We're now in part two of our series, Undivided. Now, before we dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was verses 1 through 9. And last week, we learned from the introduction and background that the Corinthian believers were not living in a way that was pleasing to God, and they were a messy, troubled church. But in verses uh, 1 through 9, what Paul does, Paul expresses an unshakable confidence that they can and will gain the victory over their problems. And his confidence in their victory is based on what he knows to be true of them in Christ and what is true of us in Christ. I want you to follow me here. In verses 1 through 3, Paul points out their position, our position in Christ, speaks of what we are in Christ. So we're the church, ecclesia, okay, called out ones. And, and as a church, listen now, we are also sanctified and separated from all other common things, set apart for God's use and God's possessions. We have been given a new position. We are set apart to God, set apart by God to be a holy people. Therefore, we are to be different, uh, set apart, sanctified from the world, Unto God, separate from sin, and we are called to be holy. Someone say holy. And then in verses 4 through 7a, Paul points out their possessions, our possessions in Christ, speaks of what we have in Christ, and we have God's grace given to us in Christ Jesus. And also, friends, that we are enriched in every way. We are spiritually wealthy in everything. Therefore, we there is no trial, no challenge, or difficult circumstance that we haven't already been given uh, the sufficient riches of Christ himself to meet. We also have the utterance of the word and knowledge of how to understand the word and apply it to our lives. Then Paul says this, you do not lack any spiritual gift. And then finally, in verses 7b through verse 9, Paul points out the promises they have, the promises that we have in Christ, speaks of our assurance in Christ. The great expectation we have regarding the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns for us. That he will keep, listen now, Paul says that he will keep you strong to the end. So that you will be blameless, it says, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that God sovereignly, sovereignly called these Corinthians and also us as well into fellowship or partnership with Christ. And then he says this, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And this tells us why Christians will be preserved to the end. It's not because we have a great indestructible faith and determination, but because Jesus Christ himself is faithful. He will confirm and secure us to the very end. Our security, listen now, our security is grounded in his character. He is, say it, faithful. This now brings us to today's text. And the title of my message today is Dealing with Division. Say that, Dealing with Division. Well, after Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians what he knows to be true of them in Christ, he then starts to address whatever issues they may have, which are many in this letter. And, and the first issue Paul addresses is division in the church. Now, friends, if you have spent any amount of time in the church, you would know that unity is sometimes difficult to preserve. Mark Twain used to say that he put a dog and a cat in a cage together as an experiment to see if they could get along. They did. 
So he put a bird, a pig, and a goat. They too got along fine after a few adjustments. Then he put a Baptist, a Presbyterian, and a Catholic. Soon there was not a living thing left. Someone said this, To dwell with saints we love, that will be grace and glory. To live below with saints we know, that's another story. So though unity within the church, friends, is sometimes difficult to preserve, nonetheless, nonetheless, we must relentlessly pursue preservation. And Paul is very adamant, adamant on this issue. Now, it's no secret that the church at Corinth had some serious problems. And here in the text, we see that they had divided themselves into a series of cliques, factions, or we can even call them fan clubs, And if you were not part of their particular group, then you didn't count in their eyes. I also want to point out that the case of this disunity wasn't of a doctrinal nature. Now, there may have been some doctrinal problems in Corinth, but this disunity here wasn't a part of that. Four points from our text. If you're ready, say yes. Come on, say yes. Point number one is this, Paul's plea. Write that down, Paul's plea. And Paul begins with a plea. Look at verse 10. I appeal, the New King James Bible says, I plead to you. So Paul says, I appeal or I plead to you. The word he uses there is not one that indicates a command, rather one that means to call upon someone to do something. So he says, I appeal or I plead to you. Brothers, say that, say brothers. Do you you see what Paul's doing here? Notice he doesn't say, I appeal or plead to you, church members or gentlemen. What he does here is he tries to get them to realize that they're all a part of the family, the family of God. They're they're tied together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's read on. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop there. I want you to notice Paul's exhortation comes by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. His appeal to them is grounded in the authority of Jesus Christ. Don't you love that? Now, Paul could have easily said, you guys better straighten up. I'm going to come and bust some heads, but he didn't. He didn't say that. Instead, he gives an exhortation by the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul is simply saying is, in light of the fact that you are now saved and in fellowship with Jesus Christ, I'm giving you a message in the name of that one with whom you have been identified. Let's read on. That all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, notice the specifics of Paul's exhortation. There's three exhortations there, okay? It's an exhortation, here we go, that they all agree with one another. That's what the text says, right? That they all agree with one another. This means that they have, listen now, a uniform testimony, a uniform testimony or to have a consistent message, a uniform testimony or a consistent message, Now, sadly, friends, as Christians, at times we're sending the world a conflicting message. We tell the world how awesome, how awesome it is to be a Christian, and then they see us bickering and fighting amongst each other. That's not a uniform testimony. That's not speaking the same thing. And as believers, we need to have a uniform testimony that we're speaking the same thing, that we're united. Now, I want to point out 
that the exhortation to agree with one another doesn't mean that it's wrong in the church to disagree about lesser matters like non-essentials, but that we be united in the essentials. The second exhortation is this, that there may be no divisions among them. That there be, what, no divisions among them. When Paul speaks of divisions in Corinth, he uses the Greek word schisma, which literally is translated and gives us the English word schism, which translates divisions. Schisma is sometimes used to describe a torn garment, and, and metaphorically it refers to a division or a schism between people. Now, again, this doesn't mean that there can't be disagreements amongst Christians who are unified, but it does mean that there must not be, listen now, a breaking up or a tearing of the body of Christ into cliques or, fra or factions, excuse me, factions that stand in opposition to one another. And then the third exhortation, that they may be perfectly united or it could also render perfectly joined together in mind and thought. Now, the word used here in the text is one that speaks of the knitting together or mending of a net. So, so follow me here. In the same way, Paul, who likens the divisions in Corinth to a torn garment, calls them to be properly united by using a Greek word, katartizo, katartizo, which means to mend. So they are to be joined, intertwined, mended together in the same mind, and in the same judgment. Are you still with me now? now? So follow me here. If we are all speaking as Christ would speak, then we will be speaking the same thing. If our judgments match Christ's judgments, then our judgments will be the same. So these three points or, or exhortations can be summed up in a single word, and that word is unity. Come on, say, say unity. Now, if you're saved, if you're saved, say Amen. Come on, say amen. Listen, there's to be unity among the members of the body of Christ. Do you remember what Paul said back in verse 9? He said this, you are in fellowship with who? With Jesus Christ. So in other words, what he's saying, so since you are in fellowship with Jesus Christ, then you ought to be in fellowship with one another. I love that. You see, this is an appeal. It's, it's a plea for them to choose unity and reject the division. So there's always a lesson. Here's a lesson. The lesson is this. Live in unity. It's that simple. Live in unity. I want you to write this down. Psalm 133. Psalm 133. The psalmist writes this. How good and pleasant, say pleasant, it is when brothers, I would even say sisters, live together in unity. It's like precious, a precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there, there speaking of unity, where there's unity, there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Unity amongst believers is pleasant, and precious. And whenever God sees unity within the body of Christ, God bestows blessings upon that body of believers. Amen. Now, I love Paul's wisdom here. You see, he sets before them 
what what right behavior looks like before he tells them what's wrong in their conduct. So he just told us what right behavior looks like, right? And now he tells them, tells us what's wrong in their conduct. Which is the point number two is the problem. Say that, the problem. Write that down. Number two is the problem. Look at verse 11 with me. The problem. Verse 11 Paul writes, My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, Paul, in naming Chloe, who was a very well-known Corinthian, very well-known, excuse me, in the Corinthian church, establishes, get this now, establishes that these contentions were not just rumors, they were facts. Say that, they were facts. And what I love about Paul is Paul, listen now, was Paul that, that, that Paul cared about truth. Say that, Paul cared about truth. He wasn't willing to deal with unconfirmed rumors. And he says, listen now, he says he knows this is true because there were eyewitnesses and he names the original source of the information. Now notice that Paul identifies the problem as what? Quarreling. Literally, it's bitter words. So this, is, this isn't minor bickering. It's serious stuff. You know what it is? It's verbal arguments in the church. That's what it is. Verbal arguments in the church. And you see, the problem was that there were people in the church who were taking sides in strife, creating factions, cliques, and fan clubs centered around personalities which brings us to point number three, is the personalities. Write that down, the personalities. Because each of these men that I'm going to point out to you right now had a different personality and a different approach to the ministry of the word. Verse 12, Paul writes, What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Did you know that the early Christians we're groupies. So, so let's look at these four groups, okay? The, the Paul group, the Paul group. And you know what? It's interesting that Paul mentions this faction first. Perhaps, perhaps he does this to diffuse any idea that he approved of it. This fir first group, uh, Paul's group, wanted to be, listen, wanted to be loyal to Paul. And after all, he was the one, Paul was the one who started the church at Corinth. Therefore, des therefore um, he deserved in their eyes, he deserved their undivided loyalty. And you see, the church was only about six years old at this point, and they were most likely Gentile converts. And, and so these Gentile converts took great pride in the fact that they had been in the church from the beginning, and they had been converted, converted under Paul's preaching, and those whom he had baptized wore it, wore it like a badge of distinction. So that's the Paul group. The second group is the Apollos group. The Apollos group. And, and we know this, right? Apollos was a young preacher who, who had visited Corinth and who had preached there for a time. In Acts chapter 18, write it down, Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Acts 18, 24 through 26. It says that he, speaking of Apollo, 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 excuse me, he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. So this guy was, he was, uh, he was educated. Uh, he was smart, uh, and he was also uh, thorough in the Scriptures. He was eloquent, an eloquent speaker. Then it says he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. 
Say fervor. So he was also a passionate and powerful preacher. Uh, he was known for his impressive speaking ability. And these people loved, loved his style of preaching. Now, Paul admits of himself in 2 Corinthians eleven six. 6, write that down, 2 Corinthians eleven six. 6, Paul admits of himself that he, Paul, was unskilled in speech. That Paul couldn't hold a candle to Apollos. So Apollos, so Apollos groupies would have said something like this. We much rather listen to Apollos, Apollos than, than, than Paul. Apollos makes the scriptures come alive. So, so we're so blessed when he preaches. Then you have the Cephas group, which is Peter's group, Peter's group. And, and these were probably the traditionalists in the church. Uh, and uh, Jewish Christians who had deep roots in the faith of their fathers. And, and they may have been uh, uh, the working class, the working class. So, so they could identify with the tough, gruff uh, fishermen from Galilee. And I want to point this out. I want to point out because Peter was a Jew, he had some legalistic tendencies. So it's possible, possible that his group leaned toward legalism. Now I want to point out this, that these three guys, okay, Paul, Apollos, and Peter agreed in their theology. They weren't competing with each other. They were, listen now, they were in one accord. Say that, they were in one accord. The problem was with the Corinthian believers who had rallied around these men because of their style, their personality, or unique emphasis in Christianity. And you see, instead of emphasizing the message of the Word of God, friends, the Corinthian believers were emphasizing the messengers. They got their eyes off of God and onto God's servants. And this is what led to, listen now, competition. Are you still with me? If you're still with me, say amen. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Listen, listen, church Christians. It's sinful, sinful for church members to compare pastors or leaders. It's sinful to essentially become disciples of men rather than disciples of the living God. Get that? Listen, church. It's a serious threat to the life of the church to find people choosing favorite pastors or teachers to the degree that they're not going to even come to church or at this point listen online unless their favorite pastor or teacher happens to be preaching or teaching. Now, there's a lesson, right? And here's a lesson. Focus on the message not the messenger. Write that down. Focus on the message, not the messenger. Friends, we need to focus on the power of the word of God, not on the personality of the preacher or teacher. To get that, we need to focus on the message. Then you have the Jesus group. These were considered the purest, those who sounded the most spiritual, this was a, a self-centered, self-righteous group who refused to submit to anyone. And they sought to disassociate themselves from any earthly preacher or teacher. And, and they basically said something like this, we don't need human leaders at all. Jesus is the head of the body, and we'll just listen to him. We're not going to listen to Paul or Paulus or Peter or anyone else for that matter. They were spiritual, listen now, they were spiritual elitists who were unwilling to submit themselves to even the apostolic authority that Jesus had defined and put in place for the church. 
And these, in this group, these people, they were just as divisive as the other three groups. Now, friends, I'm going to say this. Two things that happen when the church is divided. Two things that happen when the church is divided. First thing is this. It destroys the health of relationships in the church. It destroys the health of relationships in the church. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. It undermines, it undermines our witness to a watching world. It undermines our witness to a watching world. Now, sadly, friends, sadly, politics are dividing the body of Christ. And those who are politicizing the pandemic are dividing the body of Christ. And I got to tell you, it is so sad. And it breaks my heart. It brings me to tears. And I want to tell you, church, we're better than that. And we need to take our eyes off of that stuff and put our eyes back on Jesus, focused on him and his word. Get back to the center because who's in the center? Jesus Christ is in the center. Listen, friends, our loving unity in Jesus Christ is one of the most powerful evangelistic tools that you and I have as believers. Our unity as a church, as the church, listen now, it was on the mind of Jesus the night before his crucifixion. And in John chapter 13, verse 35, John 13, 35, he told his disciples in the upper room that their love for one another would be the mark, say the mark, by which people would know that they belonged to him. And then, and then, he prayed for that in John chapter 17, John 17, verses 20 through 21, that's known as the great high priestly prayer where Jesus prayed, my prayer is not for them alone, speaking of the 12 disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That includes us. That all of them may be one. Did you get that? That all of them, believers, past, present, and future may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us. Listen to what he says. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Love that. Our unity speaks volumes. Our unity is key. Now, the thing that seems to be the, the identifying connection with these leaders was baptism. And, and what Paul does here, he asks a series of questions, and these are, are rhetorical questions. And the answers to these questions are obvious. So I want you to follow me here. Verse, verse 13a. Paul writes, is Christ divided? Now, a literal translation is this. Is Christ broken up into little pieces and handed out to different factions? <laughs> and the answer is no. No, why? Because there is only one Christ. One Christ, say that, one Christ. Listen, friends, Christianity is not an institution or a, a body of teachings. Christianity is Christ himself, the person, listen now, of Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and what? And the life. He gave himself, listen now, in order to make us one in him. And here, Paul appeals to the unity of the person of Christ. 
Let's read on, verse 13b. Was Paul crucified for you? In other words, was it Paul who redeemed and purchased you to himself? And the answer is what? No. No. Now, you can take out Paul's name and replace it with Apollos' name, Apollos name or, or Peter's name or any popular pastor, teacher, or leader's name of today, and the answer is still going to be no. Say that, no. And here Paul appeals to the cross of Christ. It was Christ and Christ alone who was crucified for you and for me. Can I get an amen? Verse 13c. Were you baptized into the name of Paul? And the answer is what? No. You see, the Corinthian believers were making too much of who baptized them. And what Paul does here, Paul puts it in proper perspective. And what he's saying is, how could you think of showing a loyalty to me, Paul's saying, okay, that belongs only to Jesus Christ? And Paul shows how silly, say silly, how silly it is that he could be put on the same level with Christ. You see, Paul, and I love this about Paul, Paul wanted no part of a faction, of a clique, of a fan club that was named for him. He saw himself, love this, he saw himself as a servant, as a laborer for the kingdom of God, not a superstar or a celebrity. Now I want to say this. The problem hasn't been, or this, I say, this problem hasn't been limited to the church in the first century. The church in every age, every age, has faced the temptation to exalt certain men higher than they ought. Martin Luther, the famous Protestant reformer, made this plea against the growing trend toward denominationalism in his day. He says this, I pray you leave my name alone and do not call yourself Lutherans, but Christians. Who is Luther? My doctrine is not mine. I have not been crucified for anyone. St. Paul would not, would not that anyone should call themselves of Paul nor of Peter, but of Christ. How then does it befit me a miserable, a miserable bag of dust and eggs to give my name to the children of Christ. Cease, my dear friends, to cling to those party names and distinctions. Away with them all, and let us call ourselves only Christians after him from whom our doctrine comes. It is quite proper that the papists, speaking of the Roman Catholic religion, should bear the name of their party because they are not content with the name and doctrine of Jesus Christ. They will be papists besides. Well, let them own the Pope as he is their master. For me, I neither am nor wish to be the master of anyone. I and mine will contend for the soul and whole doctrine of Christ, who is our soul master. I love that. There's a lesson. Here's a lesson. And the lesson is this. Exalt Jesus, period. Say that. Exalt Jesus, period. He and he alone is to be exalted. Not a denomination, not a pastor, not a teacher or a leader, friends. Only Jesus Christ himself is to be exalted. Exalted, period. Now I want to say this. It's okay to esteem your pastors and leaders and teachers, okay? But don't exalt them. Jesus Christ 
is to be exalted, exalted only, period. Can I get an amen? Paul's plea, Paul's plea, the problem, the personalities, and point number four is this, Paul's personal defense. Write that down, Paul's personal defense. If you're still with me, say amen. I'm loving this. Aren't you loving this? Verses 14 through 16, follow me. I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. Listen to what he says in verse 15. So no one can say that you are baptized in my name. Verse 16, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if any, I remember if I baptized anyone else. So what Paul does here, Paul goes on the record to show how, show that he only baptized a handful of people in Corinth. And he does this because a large group of Corinthian believers were bragging, it was Paul who converted me. Man, Paul's the one that brought me to the Lord. I was baptized personally by Paul. Paul baptized me. And so, listen now, and so going on the record, what Paul does, Paul knocks the props right out from under those who would place their status upon their identification with him. And what Paul is pretty much saying is this. He's saying, I didn't baptize you, so you can't possibly be identified with me. Then I love what Paul does. By way of explanation, he focuses on the cure. Say the cure. The cure for the division in the church. Look at verse 17a. Verse 17a. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Gosh, I love that. To preach the gospel. And here, Paul, what he does, he summarizes the fact that baptism must take a seat, must take a, a back seat, excuse me, a back seat to the ministry of the proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And you see what Paul's doing, Paul's putting baptism in its proper place. And that's why Paul didn't bother to keep track of whom or how many he had baptized. Now, there is one thing we can conclude from this, and it's this. It's it's that the Bible doesn't teach, the Bible doesn't teach baptismal regeneration, okay? Uh, Which is that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Now, listen. If Paul believed, as some churches and Christians group, Christian groups do today, that you have to be baptized to be saved, then he would have baptized every convert he made as soon as possible. In fact, that would, uh, that would mean that we're saved by works and not by grace. And we know that's not true. We're saved by grace, not by works. Listen, friends. Baptismal records... Forms of communion, styles of music and worship, the architecture of the church building, and other physical things that we try to hang on to don't sustain or promote unity. What sustains and promotes unity is lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen? You see, Paul wasn't sent to start a cult of people who could be baptized by him. He was sent to preach the gospel. And we are sent just like Paul, the same way Paul was sent, and that is to preach and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. To share the good news. John 3.16, right? It's all there. It's in a nutshell. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, that's the greatest love that he gave his one and only begotten son, that's the greatest gift, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the greatest hope. Greatest love, greatest gift, greatest hope. 
Verse 17b. Not with words of human wisdom. And I want to stop there. Paul came speaking plainly without any attempt to impress with eloquence or intellect. And what he did, he preached the gospel. Listen now, Paul preached the gospel in simple terms which people could understand. And this is what I love about Billy Graham. Billy Graham was so simple when he presented the gospel. And that's why Billy Graham was so effective in bringing people to Jesus Christ. There's a lesson, and here's a lesson. Are you ready? The lesson is this. You don't have to be a great speaker to share the gospel effectively. Write that down. You don't have to be a great speaker to share the gospel effectively. Amen? Just share it in simple terms. Let's read on. Paul writes, Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Get that? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul is saying, if one preaches the word of God with a reliance on human wisdom of words, they can make the gospel of no effect. You see, friends, the, persu the persuasive power is in the message, not in the messenger. I'm going to say it again. The persuasive power is in the message, the word of God, not in the messenger. There's a wonderful story of, a power, of, of the power of the cross at work through a simple man by the name of D. L. Moody, Dwight L. Moody, who was a shoe salesman in Chicago, Illinois, in the middle part of the 19th century. Uh, he was converted to Christ, and he had no formal schooling. Uh, he used horrible uh, grammar his whole life, but he shared the gospel with a passion. And God turned him into the most powerful evangelist in America in the 19th century. And because of his, of his effectiveness, he was invited to preach in other countries. The first time he was asked to preach at Oxford University. And, and the, British, the British press had a field day with this, with this unlettered simple man. He was also physically unattractive, having a huge pot belly, and the press savaged him on his physical appearance. So when he was introduced to the hundreds of students at Oxford University, there was a lot of snickering and noise. And he walked back and forth. And as he walked back and forth across the stage a couple of times, looking at these men, and as he was walking, he walked and walked until it got quiet. And these were his opening words. Don't you believe, young gentlemen, that God don't love you because he do? Then he repeated his words. And that day there was a hearing of the gospel for the gospel of Christ and a revival at Oxford University because of the simple preaching of a man who believed, as the Apostle Paul did, that we must glory in the cross of Christ and the message of Christ and quit looking at the messengers. Can I get an amen? You see, I believe Paul made mention of the cross here in order to heal the fragmentation in this church. And you see, Paul, by calling them back to the cross, was calling them back to unity. And by calling them back to the meaning of the cross, Paul hoped and helped to, to help them, help them find unity. And I love how he brings them back 
to the cross. That's what communion is all about, right? When we take communion once a month, it's to remind us of what Jesus Christ did back on the cross. Now, if you're saved, say amen. Listen now. When we get our eyes off of men and systems and put them on Christ and His cross, divisions are minimized. When we understand, listen now, the cross, when you and I as believers understand the cross, there will be no room left for the divisions in the body of Christ. And that's why Paul called them and is calling us back to the cross. The cross brings and maintains and preserves unity in the body of Christ. It reminds us of what he did on the cross. And when we go to the cross, we're all on level ground. Ray Steadman said this, The healing power of the cross of Christ cuts across all human value systems and petty distinctions. The humiliation of Jesus Christ on the cross contradicts any attempt to exalt human leader. We should stand humble before the eternal work of the cross, convicted of our arrogance, our rivalry, and the distinctions that we try to promote between men. Can I get any men? Now as we close and we wrap this up, five takeaways from this message. The first one is this. Choose unity and reject the divisions. We as believers in the body of Christ, we must choose unity and we must reject the divisions. Got it? Reject it. Stay away from it. Have no part of it. The second takeaway is this. The unity of the local church is essential to an effective witness to the lost world. I'm going to say it again. The unity of the local church is essential to an effective witness to the lost world. When the world sees that we're getting along and loving each other as Christ has commanded us to love each other, it will win them to Christ. It will bring them to Christ. But when they see us bickering and fighting, they want no part of that. It draws them away from Christ. The third takeaway is this. God condemns any attitude. God condemns any attitude which leads to partisanship or faction within the church. I'm going to say it again. God condemns any attitude, any attitude which leads to partisanship or faction within the church. The fourth takeaway is this. Focus on the message, not the messenger. Got it? Focus on the message, not the messenger. God hates any attitude whereby, listen now, whereby people devote themselves to a man or to a woman. Got it? Focus on the message not the messenger. And finally, the fifth takeaway is this. The message of the cross restores unity. The message of the cross restores unity. Listen, friends. His redemptive work on the cross, okay? It is His redemptive work on the cross that should glue us tightly together. Can I get an amen? Say amen. Now, as we close today, I'm going to close by praying the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, verses 20 through 21. And I just, uh, I quoted this verse earlier in the message, but I want to pray this prayer that Jesus prayed. So let's all bow our heads. My prayer is not for them alone, 
I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Amen. Say amen. Listen, if you've, you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your life to be your personal Lord and Savior, we want to give you that opportunity today. And what you got to do is admit that you are a sinner, acknowledge that you need a substitute, and accept Jesus Christ as Savior. And if that's you this morning, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner and I need you to come into my life to save me, to cleanse me, and to change me. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord, and I believe within my heart that God raised you from the dead. I receive you this day. I am saved, sealed, sanctified, satisfied, justified, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. I am born again. And from this day forth, Lord, I will serve you faithfully until you call me home. Thank you, Jesus, for receiving me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you said that prayer, we would love to hear from you. And you can email us at contact at cryout.org. That's contact at cryout.org. Well, I hope you enjoyed the message. Let's stay unified. Let's love each other. Let's focus on Jesus Christ and Him and Him alone. Love you. God bless you. And I will see you next week.